Open with me in your copy of the Word of God to the book of Hebrews. We'll be in Hebrews chapter 2 this morning, verses 14 through 16. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can borrow one of ours, even take it home if you like. But that hardback Bible in front of you, uh, we'd turn to page 1002 in that Bible and you'll find our text for this morning. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. If you're new to Heritage, we work through books of the Bible, and we are working through this book of Hebrews part by part. Sometimes smaller parts, sometimes bigger parts. You'll remember if you've been with us that in the first chapter of this book, The author proclaimed Christ as greater than angels. And the special thing about angels is that they brought God's word. And the whole Old Testament story is made up of some amazing encounters with God and some gracious uh, words from God through angels and the giving of his covenant and his law and his promises. Uh, But Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. He's better than the angels who used to deliver God's word. He is God's word incarnate. He is God's word to us. He is over, higher than the angels, exalted at the Father's right hand. Well, in chapter 2, he's showing us why that's good news for us. And that is because the Son, who is now seated at the right hand of the Father and is exalted over angels, was for a little while made lower than the angels. He took on humanity. And we have been, over the last several weeks, in a a mini-series, really, which is what this section of Hebrews is, on the Incarnation, sermon which I'll set up with this nightmare, if I could. Um, Pascal, a French philosopher from the 1700s, offered up this picture, imagine A number of men in chains, all under the sentence of death, some of whom each day butchered in the sight of the others. Those remaining see their own condition in that of their fellows. And looking at each other with grief and despair, they await their turn. This is an image of the human condition. It is though we are all on the same conveyor belt moving to the same destination. And we may busy ourselves with this or that on the conveyor belt, and there are plenty of sights to enjoy. Nevertheless, we are all headed to the same place. A year ago now, we remembered the 20th anniversary of 9-11 when terrorists hijacked two planes and drove them into the Twin Towers. There were other 
atrocities that day, but those are the particularly symbolic events. And some 3,000 innocents died going about their day, eating lunch, tending to matters at work, making phone calls to family, and within a short amount of time after the planes hit, they were dead. A great tragedy, and one we remember rightly. If you were to go to the memorial, you would find two large fountains that are inverted. If a fountain is typically up like this, these fountains move into the ground, symbolizing absence, the absence of those 3,000 souls with their names around the edges of the fountains, which make up the foundations for each of the two towers in lower Manhattan. It occurs to me that the tragedy of that day wasn't that they died. Hear me right. Because that was going to happen. It was when they died, sooner than expected, and it was how they died, under attack by their fellow humans, going about their day, having not provoked this particular sentence. But nevertheless, they would have died. These days, we're talking about Putin and what's in his head and what he'll do if we do this or that. And I'm glad I'm not in charge of negotiating what our foreign policy should be. Uh, but it's important we should pray for our nation's leaders and the leaders of nations. Uh, but what if he were to hit the button and we were to have a nuclear holocaust? Well, that would be just like a tyrant hitting fast forward on the end, which is coming for all of us. For again, we are all on the same conveyor belt. We're all going to the same place. No tyrant can decide that we die, only that we may die sooner than we had planned or hoped. Well, in the first week of our short series, now in chapter 2 on the Incarnation, why it was necessary for God the Son to become fully human in order to save us. We saw that it was necessary so that Jesus could, the Son could represent humanity in order to fulfill God's purpose for humanity. God is term, determined that humanity will, will reflect his image and we have not had dominion over the earth and we've given our submission to the creature, a serpent in the garden but Jesus comes as a new Adam, and he obeys perfectly, and through his obedience, he fulfills God's purpose for humanity. Last week, we saw that the Son comes to identify with us personally in order to bring us into that purpose, in order that he might bring many sons into glory. And just as God delivered his people through the waters in the Exodus, so God brings us out of our Egypt, out of death and the sentence of death, and into his purpose for us of glory. Well, we might ask the question, how is it that the incarnation accomplishes that? And today and next week, we explore the answer to that question. How exactly it works that the incarnation accomplishes this? It's a great salvation for us. And really, the difficulty, as I had signaled a few weeks ago, of slowing down this much is that one couple sentences depends on the next to make any sense 
or to even be good enough news. And that's the case here. I'm going to preach this passage, but I'm going to have to pull a little bit from next week. I want to preach next week this week, and yet we'll hold some of our cards. And next week will be a kind of a capstone where each of these weeks has been leading so far. That purpose that the, that the uh, incarnation, uh, that God was pursuing and sending the Son, without which no other purpose would be accomplished. But this week, we're focusing on verses 14 through 16. Christians, you have no reason to fear death. That is my claim this morning. And it's quite a claim. And it's a straightforward claim grounded in exactly what this passage tells us God has done for us in the Son. We'll look at some bad news this morning. We'll look at some good news and then we'll consider how we can make sure that good news is applied to us. First, some bad news that death is not someone else's problem. And we need to say that, that death is not someone else's problem. Because other people are dying in other places and other people are dying in this place. And yet it's not so much on our minds. Uh, We've even structured our lives and society and life and death itself so that it might be out of our minds. In fact, I found uh, a particular disorder to be curious and worth sharing with you. Phanatrophia, if I'm saying that correct, which is the fear of death. And this was on the website for the Cleveland Clinic. Not some unofficial corner of the web, not a parody website of phobias. What is phanatophobia? It is an intense fear of death or the dying process. Another name for this condition is death anxiety. You might be anxious about your own death or the death of someone you care about. And that may be an indication that you have phanatophobia. I don't mean to mock those who are particularly paralyzed by a fear of death so that we would have a category like this, or to mock those who are seeking with their best tools, apart from the gospel, to help their fellow humans. But we have to see some humor in this. Now, what is a phobia? It's an intense sense of worry or panic about certain activities, which I think is a funny way to refer to death. Um, Objects or situations, death is a situation. Examples would be claustrophobia, fear of small confined spaces, or areophobia, fear of flying. Is thanatophobia normal? Well, it's natural to fear some sense, to feel some sense of worry about death or dying. After all, it's normal to fear the unknown. You 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 might think dying will be scary, painful, or lonely, But if you have thanatophobia, your fear of death affects your daily life, which struck me as um, a curious way to put it. How are we not not all one of these? Um, Or you might go out of your way to avoid talking about death or the dying process. Every American, symptoms and causes, who's at risk? Uh, Thanatophobia can affect adults and children. It's more common in people who are in poor health or receive a diagnosis of a serious illness. 
Uh, I'm afraid the person who learns they have stage four cancer isn't concerned about having phenetophobia and reaching out for help with this one. Uh, the person who doesn't have religious beliefs, understandable, feels a, a sense of dissatisfaction with their life or has low self-esteem or has parents or loved ones who are elderly or dying and, uh, and the article goes on for diagnosis and tests and how to prevent it. And uh, there's really no way to prevent a fear of death as it's described on this on this page. No, death affects us all. It affects us all every day. And that fear is no disorder. It is a proper orientation to the matter at hand. We're going to reflect on death with three words this morning in this section of our sermon. Three words in our passage. Power, fear, and can't read my second word. So um, we're going to get to it, though, because I understand everything else that I've written. So in the first place, death is powerful. It's powerful. And since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the, here it is, the power of death. That is the devil. That's right. That's the second word, devil. That is the power of death. Death is powerful. If you were in a canoe headed for the edge of the Niagara Falls, you would not be faulted or having considered to have a disorder if you were a little concerned about what was coming up, you know, with the falls and how you heard. And there are these pictures and you have a friend who was texting you from going over the edge and you hear the screams Now, the Niagara Falls are powerful, and death is powerful. There's a power to it. It's powerful over all human life. No human is exempt, and none of you, unless Christ returns and takes us to himself before we die, and you're safe in him. Did you get a new job this last year that you're really happy with? You've been looking forward to it. You've been working toward it, maybe your whole life, and uh, given yourself to a decade of education for this particular post, well, congratulations, and that is a good thing. Um, you're still going to die. Uh, did, you, did you lose the job that you loved? And now you don't like your, very, your job very much. Well, I hate to say congratulations, or maybe there's some consolation in this, but well, you're going to die, so you won't have that job forever. Are you, are you wealthy, and you have worked for wealth, and you have what you need, and you're thankful? Um, you, you don't have cares in, in, in this life like some do. You're going to die. Um, are you poor? Do you consider yourself as needy and hungry? Now, it gets worse. You're going to die. Are you smart? Are you uneducated? Are you well-liked by your friends? Do you feel like no one likes you and no one loves you? All the same, all of you will die. There is no credential that you can bring in in and of yourself. There is no benefit that you have that will change this circumstance. Humanly speaking, we will all die. This is something that affects all human 
life. Death and taxes are the two certain things. Death is more certain because kids don't pay taxes, but kids will eventually grow up into adults in the normal course of things and die even at a good old age. But death is not just a fact about us. And it is not just an event that awaits us down the road. Here, it is described as a power that is over us. You and I are under the power of death. It not only is powerful over all human life, but it is power over all of life for all of us outside of Christ. We find ways to distract ourselves from this matter. Phones, jobs, family perhaps, good things that we shouldn't discount as gifts. Phones aren't always good things, but they are tools for doing all kinds of good things. And we should be busy with all kinds of things in our human lives here. But we are vulnerable to just tying up our minds and hearts so that we might not think of what comes at the end of the conveyor belt. Nevertheless, even though we may not make much of that great problem at the end, the great problems we make out of the many small things between here and there are often tied to the fact that the clock is ticking. We are always counting down, running out of time, running out of time between this season and the next. We are passing life by. It may even feel like it's passing us by. Even our distractions betray the fact that there is something that would be on our mind otherwise. And when we're not distracting ourselves, we may well be despairing of all life. And certain points of rejection in life or losses in life or encounters with the futility of life or disillusionment over who we are as those who have life can all lead us to a sense of despair that betrays the fact that our lives will eventually end. In our despair and in our distraction, we prove that death has a certain power over us. Well, death is powerful. The second word here I want us to meditate on is that of, that of devil. The devil. The one who has the power of death. If death has a certain power over all, of, all human life and over all of life, for it submits, subjects us to lifelong slavery, the author says. And the devil is the one that Scripture says has the power of death. You see, death isn't just powerful, but death is personal. It's personal for us. It means the end, the death of your life, your physical life, and everything you enjoy doing in it. It's the death of your relationships, your best relationships, your family relationships, your friendship, your friend group. It's the death of that. It's the death of of your enjoyment of the food that you like. It's the death 
of the enjoyment of the job and the skills and the insight that you've acquired. It's deeply personal for us, and that's one reason we fear it. But it's not just personal for us. It's also personal for the one who has the power over us by it, namely the devil. The devil is real. He is real, not a force real, but he is personal and real. It is possible to blame everything on the devil and to externalize all of your problems and your sins on the devil. We need not do that. We can simply mirror the way the Bible talks and we are as spoken to as those who are guilty of our own sins. Nevertheless, here is the devil who is said to have the power of death over us. And so we shouldn't make too much of him, if I could say that, but neither should we make too little of him and underestimate him. His power over us in death, his possession in a, in a sense of the power of death, which wields a certain slavery over us, is real. Real enough that God the Son came as a man to deal with this. And so we ought to take it seriously ourselves. The devil is real. And he is evil. His intention is your harm. His intention is your misery. And he loves death. Long to die? Has he so enslaved you to the fear of death that you want to get it over with? Has he so corrupted your mind and enticed you into sin and evil thoughts against God that you would insult God by taking your own life and so pleasing God's enemy, the devil? Well, there are all kinds of reasons we may despair of life, but let me promise you that that despair is provoked by one who hates you. Turn from those thoughts. Hear this good news this morning, which we will get to in turn. The devil is real. Uh, he is evil. And the devil has a point. And that's what I think this matter of his power over us in death is. What the Bible is not teaching is that there's God, the creator of all things, who is over all things, and then there's his nemesis, the devil, who is in some fashion a match for him. And he's in a massive negotiation or tactical fight in which he plans to and hopes to come out ahead. It may come out ahead because he's stronger and bigger and he's God. But nevertheless, the devil is the one who owns death and wields it as a kind of sovereign weapon of his own. No, that is not the case. So what does it mean that Jesus destroys the one who has the power of death, the devil, that the devil has the power of death? Well, according to the Bible's story, when we submitted ourselves to the devil's lies and believed the lie about God that he was not good in the gift of his command or good enough in all the things that he had given us in the garden, 
and we decided to take the word of the serpent and follow him into death, we received as humanity represented in Adam the just penalty for our sins, which God had fully told Adam in advance, that on the day he eats of the tree, he would surely die. And so humanity began to die. And so every human since dies. That was not the creation design, but it was within God's plan how things providentially unfolded. But that sin was on humanity. And the devil loves that we took the bait, and he loves that we die. And he accuses us of sin even before God. And apart from some answer to sin, he has a point. He is absolutely right. We do deserve to die. And so even that reminder that we're sinners and that we don't have hope in the temptation to try to fix our, our predicament and problem of sin by some type of conjuring of of a human righteousness is all just one scheme after another to see that we land in the grave without an answer for death. Distracted or despairing, he's good either way. He wields the power over us because we have given it to him in our sin. Death is powerful. It is personal. Now the third word we'll meditate on here, fear. It is dreadful. When Christ came to deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. It is dreadful because we cannot deliver ourselves from it. I got a text message from my mom this week. Hey, the SpaceX thing is flying over Missouri. We should hear it at this time. It should be over wherever you're at around this time, and it'll land and let the kids know. I'm like, ah, missed that. Wasn't paying any attention. We'll get home a little too late. Someone else went into space and came back safely. It's pretty amazing. We can do all kinds of things. And Elon can make plenty of promises he can probably keep. But we cannot deliver ourselves from this one. Death awaits us with all of the deaths I have mentioned. But the great terror and dread in death is not the fact of death, the event of death. It is the fact that we know we deserve it. Deep down, we know we deserve this fate. Because of our sin, because of our self-righteousness, the clock is ticking. A fear of death and a lifelong slavery to that fear is a good way of describing humanity in all of our restlessness. With every death, it is as though we are marching toward our own end. With every obituary and every funeral, even every ache and pain, we are reminded that that is where we are going, the conveyor belt moves along. 
So friends, death is your problem, and there is nothing that you can do about it. It has been said that life is like a murder ministry in which we ourselves turn out to be the victims. We could also say the murderers to some extent. And this passage tells us all of this. But this is not why this passage is here to tell us about death. God did not give us the Bible to judge us. We are judged by it. But that is not why this passage is here. There is bad news that we've explored under the surface of the passage. But on the surface of the passage is very good news. And while death is not someone else's problem, it is a problem that is familiar to and belongs to you and me, Jesus made death his problem. Uh, Only passages ago, the author of this letter told us to pay much closer attention to what we have heard and not neglect the great salvation that we have been given. And so this passage is another exercise in not neglecting our great salvation and of paying attention to our great salvation that we might not drift away from our Lord. And we'll meditate on the rest of this passage in three steps and three words like we, we did. The word partook, the word destroy, and the word deliver. And for those of you who take notes and you don't need to take notes, I'm actually going to work in reverse order. So if you already wrote them down, well, slow down a little bit. Sorry about that. So first, deliver deliver. Friends, this passage tells us that if we are in Christ, if we are Christians, if we belong to Jesus, that Christ has delivered us from a fear of death. That you are not enslaved to a fear of death. You do not need to be afraid of death. It's a profound claim. God doesn't want you to be afraid. And he has gone to great pains and lengths to see that you would not have to be afraid of death. And it's not through some type of coping mechanism or a strategic set of conversations or getting used to death by being around it a little bit more. It is by removing death as an obstacle itself. It's by taking death out of the picture as are any real threat to us. It's by taking the sting out of it. We will die, but the sting of death, it's gone. He came to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And this ought to change our lives. For if we are not afraid of death, we ought not to live like we're afraid of dying. As important, and by that we mean, we ought not to live like we're afraid of dying and facing the judgment of God in guilt for our sins. We ought to live into and on the basis of the forgiveness that God has given to us of our sins by which he has disarmed death. Christian, you do not need to be afraid of death for you have been delivered from it. And how has Has God delivered us from this fear of death? But he has destroyed, our second word here, 
He has destroyed the one who has the power of death. He has destroyed the devil. Now, this needs a little bit more uh, teaching around it, for the devil is still around, and we're warned not to give in to temptation and to beware his fiery darts. You don't need to turn there with me. But in John chapter 12, we have an important word from Jesus that now is the judgment of this world, that now will a ruler of this world be cast out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And John says that he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Some of the things that Jesus said when he said them in real time were not always clear to the first hearers. No, but they are clear to us. The ruler of this world, the devil, would be cast out. We find another passage, and he would do it by his cross. Another important passage in chapter Excuse me, the book of Colossians, chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. I'll begin in verse, verse 13, if you're making notes. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers, the point of focus for the moment, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So you can see how it is that We are delivered from death and the fear of it. And how it is that we're delivered from death through the destruction of devil who has the power of death. He is disarmed and his power is muted, removed, precisely because our sins have been nailed to the cross. And this is why I said early, the nature of his power is that he has a point. But you see, when Jesus goes to the cross and takes our sins on himself and dies to take them away so that they do not fall on you, he no longer has a point. He has nothing to accuse you of. Dear friend and sinner, if your faith is in Jesus, Satan has nothing to accuse you of. And if you know yourself in the last day, You're not altogether comfortable with that because you're not altogether comfortable with how you've lived in the last day and the thoughts you've thought and the the things that you've said. But this is the scandal of the cross. It's that, yeah, you sinned and it was punished on the cross in the body of Jesus, nailed there. So that your real debt, which includes your real sins, would be marked canceled. And by marking canceled, that's a word to the serpent. Don't touch him. You've got nothing on him. And he has nothing on you if your faith is in Jesus. And by faith in Jesus, I do not refer to a work that you perform, 
mustering up all kinds of good within you in order to do the good thing of putting your faith in this message about the cross. Faith is merely receiving the verdict of the Bible on your sin is true, namely, guilty, deserving of damnation, and receiving God's verdict on Christ as true, guilty, having received damnation, so that you would receive his new verdict on you, which is not guilty, having done nothing and contributed nothing to that new status, which is why you go free from a fear of death. And so we ought not live like we are afraid of death, like it holds anything over us, which certainly doesn't mean living like we might want apart from Christ. It means living into that. But the point of this passage is simply that death is not a problem for those who are forgiven of their sins because God has removed the problem of death by taking the reason for death, our sins, on his son. So I trust that you're believing in him. The devil is real. He is evil and wishes you harm and misery, and he is disarmed, and he is no threat. And how is any of this possible unless God the Son came all the way to us? Our third word, partook. Backing up here, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, and you say, the children? Yes, God's children, broadly humanity, perhaps more narrowly in this paragraph, those who belong to him, fully human, to save us, those who are his, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Each of these passages in turn is speaking of The sameness, he became like us. He became one of our brothers. He's not ashamed to call us brother. The incarnation is in view. But the son came and put on flesh and it was not enough merely that he became a human and lived a perfect life and obeyed perfectly. For then perhaps that purpose of fulfilling God's purpose for humanity would be achieved. But he couldn't bring us into it unless he does something about our sin and our guilt, which he has, by destroying the one who has the power of death, the devil. And all of this required that he take on a human nature, a full human nature. Jesus, friends, the eternal son become man, took on humanity in order to take on your great enemy And to deliver you from it. So that you could say personally. I do not fear death. And I am no slave to death that I used to be. When you testify to what God has done for you in Christ. Let us not make light of having grown up in a Christian home. Or skip over the matters of being ministered the gospel to, and these kinds of miraculous, powerful, death-destroying, Satan-destroying, incarnation-revealing words, when we tell our stories of salvation, praise the Lord if you grew up in a Christian home, the truth of the matter about you 
if you believe in Jesus and believe the things I've said, is that God has sent his son for you and you believe it, that his son has lived a perfect life in obedience to the father, which you did not and could not, and that he has destroyed the one who has the power of death because he's taken away the keys and the accusation and he's stamped canceled on it because he went to the cross. All of that is true for you if you're in Jesus. And praise God for that. This is the special thing about any of us Christian. This is the special thing about you. It's the same old thing as the next Christian next to you. Brothers and sisters in a given family are different, and I have special kids. The really special thing about them in our home is that they're my kids. That my sons are my sons, and that my daughters are my daughters. And the special thing about you It's not what you bring to the table at our church or the gifts that you bring to contribute at our church or the money that you bring in the plate for our church or even your Christian maturity that you show up with if you moved here from somewhere else or your connections in the community if you have recently become a Christian and have have joined us here. It is the fact that Jesus has died for you and that you have trusted in him. And that you are a son having been brought to glory. And friend, you can't add a thing to that. He can, by his grace, over time, sanctify you and assure you and make you even more beautiful a child as you grow into the assurance that you are his and that you have no fear of death. And there is nothing more beautiful than a human being in Christ who stares at death without fear. And so I pray that's you this morning. We've considered that death is not someone else's problem. It's ours. We've considered that Jesus has made death his problem for you personally. And that's miraculous. And now let's consider something more certain than death. Because death is a certainty. But there is something more certain even than death. And it is God's promise to Abraham, verse 16. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Now you might get distracted here and say, well, why doesn't he help angels? Doesn't he like them? That's not the point. He doesn't help angels in the way that he helps us if we're in Christ. If we're offspring of Abraham. What is this? What is this that he's promised to the offspring of Abraham, to Abraham? Well, in Genesis chapter 12, he promised to bless Abraham and his offspring. Now, who is Abraham? But a man dead in his sins, worshiping another God from Ur, not looking for God, not interested in the one true and living God. He was of the generations that followed Noah, just like the generations before Noah. A humanity given to violence and to evil and to idolatry. And God came to Abraham in grace, pure grace, and made a promise. Abraham believed, and the scripture says it was credited to him as righteousness. And all those who believe in the promise of God concerning Christ, just like Abraham did before Christ came, get in on all of this. 
The penalty that Jesus paid on the cross is not applied to every person. It is applied to those who believe in the cross and in the Son of God who died there for us by faith and who are for that reason children of Abraham. Because when God came to Abraham with that promise, humanity was in a pretty rough spot. We had a death sentence and we were as good as dead and there wasn't hope for us. Abraham's problem was humanity's problem indicated on the first pages of the Bible we were under the sentence and the curse of death. So that God's promise to Abraham was God's gift of hope for humanity that through a son of Abraham, Jesus, you and I could have the blessing of Abraham and not the curse of Adam. It's a long way of saying, dear friend, please believe in the Lord Jesus, the son of Abraham, and become a child of Abraham, a child of God. This word here, he helps the offspring of Abraham. It's a good word. I kind of wish the translators put in parentheses, which they don't do. They have to pick one word, or, or, or. Because another word for this could be seizes or lays hold of. So in the same way that God came to Abraham out of the darkness, he brought light to Abraham in a word, he comes to us and he arrests our attention. He seizes us and lays hold of us and he saves us. As he did with Abraham's immediate descendants, he came to them and delivered them and laid hold of them and brought them into Egypt. So he lays hold of you and me and he brings us through death into heaven as sure as he brought Israel through the waters at the Red Sea and at the Jordan. This question has been posed. What would things look like if Satan really took control of a city? Over half a century ago, a Presbyterian minister, Donald Gray Barnhouse, he offered up this very scenario. And you might think, oh, well, of course, what you would have is Sodom and Gomorrah, all manner of unrighteousness. But that is actually not necessarily what the devil would have. He doesn't need all manner of unrighteousness to have his and to wield his power of death over us. There may well be a city with well-cut lawns and intact families and men who provide for their families and are real men and women who are real women and kids who obey their parents. All the while sinners but doing a pretty good job, humanly speaking, in this age of acting like dignified humans. And there'd be no swearing, and the children would say, yes, sir, and no, ma'am. And the churches would be full every Sunday where Christ is not preached. No matter what you have going for you, you have no hope in the face of death if you have not Christ. And no matter what you do not have going for you, job, possessions, friends, family, 
a working body, a clean bill of health. You have every reason to hope in the face of death if you do have him. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for this message concerning our great problem. We consider the statement that death makes about us that we are not too important to die, that it is inevitable, that we will, that we are not indispensable. And we also consider the beautiful truth that we have heard in this good news passage this morning, that we all not, while we are not too important to die, Christ has died for us, and because we are joined to him by faith, we are too important for that reason not to save. And we will be safe in death, and we have no reason to fear death if we're in Christ, because you have crushed it for us, and Christ's foot is on the serpent's head. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.